Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Well, friends, let me invite you to come on back in. Let's open the Word of God together. Over these last several months, we've been intentional to study what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been largely focused in Matthews chapter 5 through 7 uh, with excursions to see how Jesus works that out in other parts of his life and other places in the scripture. Uh, and this morning we're coming right back into Matthew chapter 5. We're in a section this month, well, this is a bit of a rollover from February. Uh, we've lost our month-by-month sequence. But uh, a section right here about how Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then he proceeds out of the Beatitudes to describe and to show a really different economy for relating to God. That instead of it being based on just rule following and checking off different boxes to constitute what is righteousness, Jesus instead gives us a new perspective on holiness that's focused around, well, God himself being at the center and our relationship with him defining how we live, how we love, how we do everything. And so two weeks ago, uh, last Sunday was a beautiful time, by the way. Thank you, everyone, for the blessing and prayer and the participation that we shared last week as we were recognizing Luke and Jason as elders, praying for myself in in this role that's a privilege to get to serve you. Uh, The week before that, we looked through this whole section in Matthew 5, where Jesus takes half a dozen different examples, where he takes a passage, particularly from the Old Testament, where he says, you've heard that it was said, and he makes a well-known statement that they would all be familiar with. And then he says, but I say to you, and as he does, we're going to take a close look this morning at one of those in particular and see that as we look closer, Jesus gives us a window into what it looks like to live as children of our Father in heaven and to embody his kingdom here on earth. And so we're just going to look at six verses this morning, um, but it's going to end up that there's a lot here for us. And so the window that Jesus is giving us is about what it looks like to not only live for God, but to live with God. And in particular, we're going to talk about lust and adultery, And where's God in the mix of all of this? So read with me here, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32. Bible says, Jesus is talking to the people. He says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Yeah, we all heard that. Uh, But then what does Jesus say? What does he say next? Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus just took one of the Ten Commandments. It's one of the big ten. He says, you've heard it said, yeah, God spoke this on the mountain and wrote it down with his finger on tablets of stone. And now Jesus says, but I say to you? I mean, you think about the people in Jesus' time who were hearing him. If When Jesus says, well, you remember how God the Father said on the Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, Do not commit adultery, but I say to you, what's everyone's reaction going to be? Can I get a collective? (gasps) Okay, let's read it again and make sure you do your part here, okay? You've heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, right? Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus continues, if your right eye causes you to sin, it's not exclusive of the left eye here, but he's getting very particular. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Sorry, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And he continues, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus is quoting there Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. It's a stipulation that would ensure that a woman whose husband is sending her away would have documentation and the freedom to carry on her own life and have a future uh, when he said, no, this is through. And so you've heard it said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Half a dozen verses. And you know the, the straightforward reading of it? Seems pretty simple, right? I mean, if, if you just look at it straightforward level, what do you get? Well, looking at people lustfully is wrong. So stop doing that. Stay away from it. Stay away from pornography and stop treating other people like sex objects. Then Jesus tells how serious we need to be about battling sin. That it's better to cut off and throw away something that leads us into sin than to have our whole body end up in hell. So take strong measures to resist temptation. And then the third section, whew, divorce is a problem, right? And even when you try to move on, things are still complicated. And you know, if, if we just take it on that kind of straightforward level, these things, these kind of three summary statements, they're, they're true as far as they go. But if you and I don't look any deeper than that, what we're going to end up with is a behaviorism without understanding. What we'll end up with is, is just a way of living that doesn't require us to have God himself really in the center of it all. And I can assure you, whenever we read what Jesus is saying, we can be sure of this. Jesus is not trying to give us instructions for living that allow us to do it without God. Right? One thing Jesus is not trying to do is give us a formula for living our lives that allows us to do it without the Lord. No, instead, what happens is if we just try to do the right things because we're supposed to, and we don't really have the Lord in the center, we can miss the Lord himself. I'm hoping this morning that we can see that the central issue in this passage, just like it is in the one preceding it, just like it is in the ones following it, the thing that's closest to God's heart here is he's saying the central issue is worship. The central issue here is not following rules, but how is God that the center in every area of our lives? Because Jesus is concerned with having every area of our lives be in harmony with God and honoring the Lord. 
And he's not afraid to wade into the mess and the messiness of our lives, to get right into our motivations, our behaviors, our sexuality, and all of our relationships in order to bring us into a restored harmony with the Lord. You know, he's concerned about our relationships with other people, with our personal integrity, our wholeness. These are very much the concern of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus is proclaiming this manifesto of the kingdom of God, he's not just talking about fasting and prayer and giving to the needy. He's talking about all the areas of our lives that touch it as deep and essential as even something like sex can do to how we're wired and how we behave and the things that we want and where we find our worth. And so let's take a closer look at the central issue being worship. Because Jesus shows us here that the sexual struggles that we experience are struggles of the heart. Here in in verse 28, right? He says the person who's looked lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. And which you may, actually it's worth taking note here, folks. Uh, The blame is not on the woman's wardrobe. The blame is on the guy's eyes and on his heart. Jesus doesn't say, if her wardrobe causes you to sin, have her change her wardrobe. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, deal with it. But as Jesus talks about this here, that our struggles with sexual issues are struggles of the heart, it's showing that it's really showing the dark and needy conditions of our own hearts. Our sexual struggles are reflecting struggles of our own hearts. And because we're spiritual beings, sex is not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. And so lust and adultery, they really matter because they're about worship and idolatry. So let's take a minute and take a look at what's worship, just to understand worship. Worship will end up involving somehow these four things, these four acts of bowing down, of obeying, of trusting and and serving. And every aspect and area of our lives ends up involving worshiping someone or something. Bowing down, obeying, trusting, and serving. These are the acts and the issues involved in worship. It's about worth, who we are turning to, who we're obeying, who we're trusting, who we're serving. And so, next slide. So take a look at how this works itself out with respect to sexual desire in our lives. So bowing down becomes a question of what is the thing that we're attaching our hearts to? To what am I giving my allegiance? And in turn, obedience. Whose agenda am I following? In sex, we're either willingly submitting to God's wise and good plans and his boundaries, or else we're saying, I'm going to write my own rules. I'm going to live by what I think is best for me and do the things that I think will get me what I want. Uh, When it comes to trusting, these are questions of to whom or to what am I going to rely on for my future, for my security, for my joy? We're either putting our life, our welfare, our future, our inner sense of well-being in God's hands, or else we're functionally putting our trust in either the person or the act of sex itself. And sex was never designed 
to carry that weight. In fact, our relationships with other people, sexual or non-sexualized, were never intended to be able to carry that weight. Thirdly, um, fourthly, sorry, fourthly, uh, in the area of serving, in all areas of our lives, the choice that we make in worship is we're either walking away from serving our own little self-centered kingdom of me in order to give our service to the great God who's made all things and who rules and owns it all. Those are the choices that we make. Am I serving my kingdom or his kingdom? And when it comes to where we give our time, our energies, the resources of our lives, the question is, am I giving them to my own plans and purposes and priorities or to God's plans, purposes, and priorities? And this is very much the case in the sexual arenas of our lives, just as it is in financial, relational, goal-oriented, every area of our lives where we find our emotional sense of health, well-being, and security. Am I serving my own will and agenda, or am I going to serve the Lord and his glory? And so how we do sexual desire and activity involves all these elements of worship. And when we cross the boundaries, we, sorry, it's when we state the sentence forward, we cross God's boundaries when we give ourselves our hearts to thoughts and desires that are outside of God's will for us. That's the dynamic that's at work. And this is why Jesus uses the language of, idol- of adultery when he starts talking about how one looks at other people. It's because adultery in the Bible is a symbol, it's a picture of idolatry. Adultery is a picture of something else. It's not just a thing of its own. It's a picture of idolatry. And Jesus is repeatedly using the language of adultery in this passage to draw our attention to the issue of worship and the larger issues of faithfulness and covenant. It's the language of adultery that connects these passages, verse 27 right through verse 32. The glue that holds it together as it's woven in Jesus' words is the language of adultery. And adultery is a picture of idolatry because adultery and idolatry both are in contrast to God's covenant faithfulness. See, God had a design for marriage from the very beginning. And God's design for marriage goes beyond our personal satisfaction, our own personal joy. It is in itself an image and a picture of God's faithfulness and relationship towards his own people. And the idea of marriage being exclusive between one man and one woman for life is an image for us of forsaking all other gods to love the Lord our God and be faithful to him only, just as he is ever faithful to his covenant with us. Now, the reality, the reality for for many of us and the families we've grown up in, the lives that we're even trying to live now, certainly as we look around us in the culture, is the image of marriage that we get to see, that we've experienced ourselves, falls way short of the image of God's faithfulness to his people and his people's undivided love for him. Now, that's not new in our generations. That's been the case throughout the scriptures in the thousands of years that were represented in the history of God's relationship with his people. Idolatry keeps getting imaged as adultery in terms of God's people's relationship with him. God is no stranger to brokenness. God's not afraid of the mess. But his ideal still remains 
the description of his heart for us. And covenant faithfulness is what he intends marriage to to be able to image for us. Marriage now, sadly, we, we kind of shifted our expectations that instead of simply being sad over the brokenness of marriage and in humility seeking God's restoration, we kind of treat it like it's normal for marriages to break up because after all, we're only human and that's the way it ends up. And marriage can get treated more like a civil contract than a divine covenant. But to Jesus, marriage is a picture and it's intended to model God's covenant faithfulness and love even to and through death. And so the imagery that he that we see, you'll see it in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul seems to be talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And he says, I am. I am actually talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. But really, there's a mystery here. It's all pointing to something bigger about Christ's relationship with his church. And that's why it's so important that you and I understand Jesus's connection to idolatry. If we're going to make sense out of what he's saying about our eyes and lust and resisting sin and how to do relationship together. Because marital faithfulness is a picture of God's faithfulness to his people and his covenant. And marital unfaithfulness is a picture of idolatry. And that's what adultery is. It's explicitly a picture of idolatry because it's not just about breaking a promise, but turning away from the one from whom we should be finding our joy and satisfaction and instead looking to find it in someone else, somewhere else. That's where adultery is a picture of idolatry, that we're rejecting the one who made you happy in order to chase someone who will instead make us miserable. You find that in the Old Testament prophets throughout. And the reality in God's promises, it's often it's hard for us to see beyond today's challenge and trouble to believe that the promise of God really can be better than the short-term attraction that we think is going to fulfill our desires right now. And so uh, God makes a promise. He intends marriage to be a long-term thing. But in the contrast between today's desires and God's promise, we keep thinking we're going to be happier if we... Let, let's just run a list from Scripture. If we eat the fruit that he said not to take. We think we're going to be happier if we worship the golden calves. We think we're going to be happier if we chase after the Baals and the Ashtoreths instead. We think we're going to be happy if we marry someone different. That's still not what God has intended. And the idol that's in play is our personal, our pursuit of personal satisfaction and fulfillment apart from God himself. And the adultery that the Lord's primarily drawing his attention to here is against the Lord himself. That we're turning away from the Lord. He's the one that we're really being unfaithful to. You know, in God's eyes, this is even part of what's implicit in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, verse 1, is that seeking after our happiness, let me say it this way, my happiness or my lack of it is not an excuse in God's eyes for me being unfaithful, for me breaking covenant. Now, the betrayal of adultery is the betrayal of idolatry. And it's this. It's found in how instead of seeking and finding our satisfaction in our spouse, in the Lord himself, we're going somewhere else to someone else for what should only come from our spouse and and indeed from the Lord. It's the essence of idolatry. 
that instead of going to the Lord, we chase and pursue other sources of satisfaction, of pleasure, of provision, of security, and so forth. Things that we're only supposed to find in the context of our covenant relationship with our God. And this idolatry, it's what happens whenever we put self first. And then we treat everything else and everyone else as a means to get what we want. We even treat the Lord that way. One of our brothers from India, uh, talking about the church in the United States, said, in the United States, you treat God like a cow. You just go, you want to milk him to get whatever you can get. Ouch. I don't appreciate that. I'm devoted. I was, But it's convicting for me because he's showing, no, when we start to use God as the means towards our end, we're turning him functionally into a golden calf of our own. And on this issue of using people and even the Lord as means to the end of our idol, of our own selfish agenda, is at the heart of our brokenness with respect to sexuality, desire, and relationships. And Jesus wants to bring us into something so much better than that. Jesus wants to bring us into a restored vision for wholeness and sexuality and relationships where we're whole people in relationship with God who have healthy relationships with both our own desires and with other people. And so in the remaining time we've got together, I'd like to try to get catch some of the glimpses that Jesus gives us here uh, where we can see the way things God intends the way God intends things to be and what Jesus is restoring us toward. Because if we look at the vision that Jesus is presenting here, even as he criticizes and challenges the way that these people and you and me tend to do life, he's also giving us a glimpse into God's intention. Right. So the three sections of this passage, verses 27 and 28, where he says, don't even look at someone else lustfully. He's showing us something about God's intent. That as we're restored in Christ, we learn to honor the image of God in other people instead of treating people as objects for our own desires. He shows us something about a, in the in the second bit. He says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it away. He's pointing us to a radically Godward orientation in how we think about what matters and what's worth it and and how we do our priorities. And in the third section... He so highlights covenant faithfulness for us and shows that his heart is not for relationships to be broken, but that instead that they're whole and held together. I I want to urge us, Sarah, can you grab me my bottles under the seat? I want to urge us not to settle for a cheap imitation of God's best. Um, The In our household, uh, I don't know if that's the case for you, I've fallen prey to, to the attraction of being able to get more cheaper. Because uh, this bottle was on the shelf at, at Gordon Food Service. And when I went to shop for vanilla, and it was a big bottle, and it was cheap. And I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the word above vanilla on the label. And if you're in the back, you probably can't see it that far. But if I told you it's big and it's cheap, what do you know about it already? It's fake. I'm sorry, Imitation. I think if they said counterfeit vanilla or fake vanilla, it wouldn't sell as well, right? So they, they label it, and, and it's sold cheap in large quantities. But this, this little bottle, this little bottle, 
like costs four times as much as the whole big bottle. Right? So when I go to store, which one am I going to get? You know. But this is the real thing. And this, this is not the real thing. And so often we're settling for what's not the real thing. And look, if you're making chocolate chip cookies and you can't taste the difference, I don't have a complaint with you using imitation vanilla in your chocolate chip cookies, especially if you share them with me. If you're bringing them to the youth group, they probably won't even know. But God has something better for us, particularly in the sexual aspects of our lives, where it's so vital that we not just sell out for the cheap imitation that our society is trying to sell us, but we instead be willing to, to come back and say, God, what do you intend? What have you wanted for us from the very beginning before sin muddied the waters? And what are you bringing us back to? You gave your own life so we can be restored to relationship with you. And God wants to restore us inside out as whole people. And so here's four ways that Christ's teaching, his example, and his work through the cross lead us into a restored vision of sexuality and relationship that stands in sharp contrast to the things that our culture is increasingly trying to sell us on the cheap. Uh, an important one, I'm just going to hit these four and then we'll try to crack them open in a little more detail. First, relationships. Relationships are intended by God to be able to be rich and intimate without having to be sexualized. Sex does not have to infect every relationship that we have, regardless of what our culture and advertisements are saying. Secondly, desire is not identity. Your attractions do not define who you are. Thirdly, Let's not confuse desires with needs. I want to distinguish between those in a minute. And and fourthly, there are some things that need to be said among us because there are things that have no place among the household of God. There's some things that are going on relevant in our culture today that the Bible is very clear about that we want to address. So uh, look, in your relationships with people, don't sexualize your relationships with other people. Look at how Jesus lives. Jesus lived in the flesh, incarnate, in facing every temptation that we have, but able to have loving and intimate relationships with all kinds of people without turning those into sexualized relationships. Healthy relationships, loving relationships don't have to be sexualized. Loving someone, genuinely loving someone, does not mean that you have to try to have sex with them. Sadly, our culture seems to be saying more and more that if you love someone, if you're really going to be in a loving relationship, that means you're supposed to be sexually involved with them. That's not the way Jesus lived. That's not what the Bible gives us. God has a better way that we can love people without trying to have sex with them. Paul gives this instruction to Timothy in in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2. He's telling him how to interact in a healthy, godly way with others. And he says to treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. When we start to to realize the Bible is full of categories of loving relationships, close, intimate interactions that aren't sexualized between parents and their children, between brothers and sisters in friendships. God has something for us where particularly in the church, particularly in our relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can regard one another 
as mothers, as sisters, as fathers, as brothers, as family together without our relationships being sexualized. Similarly, take those eyes, take that perspective to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your friendships. Let your eyes see the image of God, not potential sex partners and potential sex objects with other people. Can you see that? That's part of the restoration that Jesus is moving us towards. I know that, that for many folks where we've been in the habit of sexualizing how we look at people and thinking that way, listen, that's broken. That's not the way God's intended. Jesus has a better way. And if we'll humbly throw ourselves on the Holy Spirit for his help, the Holy Spirit will help us. But this is the way the Lord's intended it, that we would be male and female in the image of God together, living as brothers and sisters, family together, without relationships being sexualized. Um, the only place that's... Now, there is one relationship that is intended to, for sex to have its proper place, and that's between your own husband and your own wife together in that relationship. So the second idea here is that desire is not identity. This is one of the most important spiritual realities that's underlying what Jesus is saying, like in verses uh, 27 through 30 here, that desire is not identity. Instead, Jesus paints a picture of desires sometimes being harmful to who I am, that the desire is an enemy of who I actually am, and I should be cutting that off to preserve who God intends me to be. And Jesus pictures desires here as severable, separatable from our whole self. And he says that it's better, says that at most, those desires are just one piece, just one part of who I actually am. And that losing that part is better than losing all that we are. And so here Jesus is using one specific example of a specific kind of desire. He says, looking at a woman lustfully. Guys, desire comes in all kinds of forms. Desire comes in various forms. And generally what they have in common is I desire what I think is going to make me feel good. What desire has in common, generally speaking, is it's selfish. Desire is about my appetite for what I want because I think it will fulfill me. And so generally speaking, this kind of lustful desire, it's not desiring the person per se, but rather the experience that we think is going to give ourselves some gratification to fulfill or satisfy ourselves. And lust is, by definition, fundamentally selfish. You know, in our culture these days, there's a lot of confusion about sexual identity. Part of that is because sexuality is not our identity. And when we try to bring those two together, we're losing part of the big picture. Sexuality is not what we're all about. Nonetheless, we've mixed up in our thinking the distinction between sexual desire and identity. Now, our culture is inflating sexuality to make it into identity and telling you that if you have a sexual attraction, that that attraction defines your identity. And Jesus says, not so. Jesus maintains that desire doesn't define our identity. Instead, Jesus sees us as whole people and sex and attraction are not meant to be what controls us or defines us, but instead we're to control our desires and ensure that those desires only find their expression in ways that are pleasing to God 
not just ways that we think are going to please ourselves. And so it's important. This was the third point that I had in the bullet points there. So important that you and I don't confuse desires with needs. Because our culture is saying to us that if we choose not to try to fulfill sexual desires, that we're harming ourselves, that we're somehow not being true to who we are. And it's becoming increasingly common, even in Christian counseling circles, to talk in terms of our, quote, sexual needs, unquote. And guys, that's overstating it. Because sexual desires are not needs. They can be very powerful. They can be very strong. But don't confuse them with needs. No, in fact, sex is not life. I'm not getting any amens this morning. You notice this? Some of you, you're like afraid to seem like you're too interested in what we're talking about here. And... But sex is not life. And these desires are wants, not needs. Sexual desires are not just physical. They're really rooted in, in, that, in the deep inner part of who we are, in our emotional needs. Sexual desires reflect on and are wrapped up in our feelings of worth, attractiveness, am I loved? These are very real emotional realities. But so often, sexual desire, it's trying to make sex fulfill things it was never intended to do for us. You know, I realize that you may be here this morning as a survivor of sexual abuse. Abuse in a variety of ways and forms in your life. And I know it gets complicated because the act of victimization can also shape how we feel about ourselves and the things we think are right and what we feel like we ought to do. And it gets really complicated. I want to assure you that Jesus has our wholeness in mind. That's his heart for us. Regardless of where your past has been, what your history has been, you are worth being loved. And Jesus loves you. He's gone to the cross. And whatever stain you may feel like is on your life, he sees beyond that to the image of himself that he's placed there. And he wants to bring that back out in all the beauty that he's intended for you. Listen, your soul, my soul, was made for God. Our rest, our hope, our joy, our satisfaction are found in God himself. And when we give ourselves to sexual desire as what we think is going to be the solution to fill us up on the inside like that, to find satisfaction there, we're looking in the wrong place. We're turning from the one who's made us, who is the one who can restore us, the one who can fulfill us and satisfy us. And we're trying to find in sexual acts or the affection and attention of someone else what only God can give us. And we end up perverting sex into something that it was never intended to be. Instead, Jesus invites us into a kind of faith, a worship that is about trust. Trading my desire for trust in the Lord. Faith involves me trading my desire for an instant short-term gratification now, either to escape pain or to gain pleasure, and instead to trade that for trust in God's faithfulness to his promise. And his promise is twofold. Part of his promise is trading 
the temptation for gratification now for his promise of better later. That's one very important part of trusting him by faith is that we give up what we might be able to grab now because he's promised something better later. But it's not just for later. When we trust the Lord, we're responding to his invitation here and now to come close to him and to experience, well, some of the very things we were singing about. Thank you, Lord. Some of the very things we were singing about, that in Jesus himself, we find ourselves coming back to the center where it really should be. That there's something in his presence. That there's nothing worth more. That there's nothing better than actually experiencing an intimacy with the Lord. And that, that is precious. It's about, faith is about our willingness to find, to seek, to pursue, to strive, to make every effort, to find our satisfaction in the Lord himself here and now. And in our relationship with him, instead of pursuing something else that we think is going to provide that for us. Can I get an amen? Amen. Hear that. That's why it's about worship, friends. And I'd like to just hit a few things that need to be said among us because they're relevant culturally and in our time. Here we go. Um, First of all, pornography is one of the things that has no place among us. It is such an offense against the image of God. It is such a way of stripping the dignity and the beauty of what God has made each person to be. It's dehumanizing. And there's no place. It's probably, you know, it's loud and clear right in verse 28 here. But I want to urge you that if pornography is not only part of your history, but part of your present, to get away, to run away, and to find help. Don't don't say, I'm going to, I'll get around to it tomorrow. I I don't really have a problem. I can stop this anytime I want. No, guys, listen. Delay is just disobedience dressed up in a tuxedo. It doesn't change the fact that you're saying, I'm going to choose this instead of what the Lord wants instead. And and a pit can be really hard to climb out of. Uh, But there's guys in this church who are willing to throw a rope down and walk with you, who've been there, who found freedom in Christ, who said to me specifically, hey, if there's someone who wants help walking through this, I'm here to help you with that, okay? Pornography will progressively distort not only how you view others, but it will distort the image of God inside you. Take it seriously. Cut it off. Don't go there. Um, Sexual harassment, it's just completely out of bounds. Uh, It's a positive thing that currently in our culture there's recognition of that. Because for generations, power and authority have been too easily used as a lever for people to just take what they want sexually. And there's no room for that. It's not what God intends. It's not the way it should be. Sexual gratification is not something that God thinks should be a perk of power for the influential, the wealthy, or those who have authority. Using wealth and power to gratify your sexual desires is perverted. It is taking something that God's intended And it's an abuse of authority. It's abuse of power. And we're not going to dignify it by just writing it off as uh, boys will be boys or locker room talk. There's no room for that. Jesus attacks the root that gives birth to these abuses when he insists that we look on others with dignity and not use them as objects for our own desires. Um, Abusive relationships. Hey, let me appeal to you. 
if you are in an abusive relationship, where if your physical safety is in threat, God cares about your safety. Move to safety. There are resources here. Trying to honor God, trying to love someone, it's a good ideal. But if the relationship is abusive, you're not wrong to guard your own safety. God cares about your safety. And you have options here. Um, lastly, let, let's address a couple thoughts about divorce. Uh, Jesus says, it's, it's been said, but I say to you about divorce. Divorce is difficult. It's complicated. It's painful. Divorce is difficult, damaging, and complicated. And the fact is, we want to have a Jesus way of living the things that Jesus says. Do you see that combination? Sometimes in the church, we take things that Jesus says and we try to live them out in a way that ends up looking very differently than the way Jesus treated people. And here, when it comes to divorce, we need to be compassionate about divorce without acting like either it should be normal or stigmatizing its victims. Does that make sense? Divorce is the product of brokenness and it causes still more brokenness. Virtually all of us have experienced on some, you know, to some extent, either the echoes or the direct effects of the pain and the reality of, of divorce. And what we see in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, what we see in Scripture is God makes concessions. God accommodates human sin and brokenness to try to protect the individuals who are affected by that sin and its brokenness. And so, listen, if you've been divorced, we'll grieve with you. We will seek to support you and we'll try to resist stigmatizing you while at the same time saying God's intent has always been something better. But we recognize that there's brokenness that affects families among us as well. And so we want to labor to ensure both that the marriages among us achieve God's heart and express the loving environment that he intends while also making this a safe place for people who've experienced divorce. Uh, there's obviously more here than one can kind of roll through quickly on a Sunday morning. I haven't been that quick. I was going to say in a half hour. And thanks for your graciousness. It's been almost 45 minutes, I think. So thanks for your attention and thank the children's workers as well, please. Um, but listen, we're going to have a couple more sessions um, on a couple of Wednesday nights where Karen, myself, Corey, Luke, uh, and others want to just be able to create an environment where we can unpack some of what the Bible has to say and has have healthy conversations as a church family together about the way God intends things to work. Whether you're a young person, whether you're an older person, whether you're a parent with little kids, it's for all of us to be able to come and catch God's vision for how we can be whole people and, and live, <laughs> live in a way that's blessed by God, fulfilled in him in the midst of a culture that's pretty crazy about sexuality. What we really need, guys, is God's grace. There's not a single blueprint full of checklists that's going to enable us to avoid every pitfall. Instead, Jesus wants to bring us into a freedom that comes from his grace. And his freedom and his goodness was bought for us at the cross. And it's not just a better perspective about sex. It's not just better habits or resolutions. It's having Jesus at the center with his grace that restores our soul.